And that's why we have to have the annual flu shot because every year as the flu comes around again, it has gone through a year of, you know, fashion changes and comes at us with a different complement of coat proteins. So sometimes, as you say, we guess wrong. We just try to figure out what this year's model is most likely to be like and what kinds of vaccines will have the biggest coverage. And sometimes we get it wrong. The coronavirus does not do that. It does not swap coat protein domains like influenza viruses do. So that's actually really good news. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. It's almost the end of 2020, and the coronavirus pandemic is still in full swing. Here in the UK where I live, we're about to enter another full-on lockdown to try and wrest back some control over the infection rate. So we thought it was time to touch on that big old elephant in the room again. Today, we're taking a closer look at the current state of the coronavirus vaccine effort. For future reference, for people listening back to this episode later, hello, future folks. This episode was recorded on the 3rd of November 2020, because both myself and the guest thought, what better way to distract ourselves from the US election than to talk about a global pandemic and vaccines? With me today is chemist Derek Lowe. He has degrees in chemistry from Hendricks College and Duke and has been working in the drug industry for over 30 years. In that time, he's worked on drugs to treat diseases including diabetes, Alzheimer's, schizophrenia, osteoporosis, and MS. He's been blogging prolifically at In the Pipeline since 2002, which makes his blog quite possibly the longest-running science blog on the internet. And since the pandemic kicked off early this year, he's been deep-diving the vaccine effort. Derek, thanks for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me. So the thing I wanted to start with was so that everyone has an understanding of the actual kind of effort that's been underway since the pandemic really kicked off. So I'd like to actually start by talking about what is the typical process to go from thinking, I'd like to try and create a vaccine to vaccines available for use in the wider public, setting aside for a minute the particulars of a global pandemic at a coronavirus scale. I mean, how does this usually go? Sure. Well, it usually goes a lot slower than what we've been seeing. Because vaccines have one really huge difference between any other kind of drug development, and that is they're being given to people who aren't sick. And that sounds trivial, but it's a huge difference because that means that the safety bar is set very high. You really have to make sure that the risk-benefit ratio is where it should be. So... You look at a vaccine, say, for rotavirus, which is the childhood diarrhea vaccine. That was in development for 10 to 15 years because they kept trying it in huge trials in different populations under different circumstances, all sorts of variations because, of course, this thing was going to be given to young children, very beginning of their lives. And if there's any problem with it, you could have devastating consequences. So it was tested and tested and tested. Of course, you have to have a target before you even get that far. So you look at something and think, all right, how could I set off an immune response in a beneficial way? And that generally means you want something that's on the surface of whatever it is you're trying to uh, set off the response to, surface of a bacterium, surface of a virus, 
a piece of some kind of uh, bacterial toxin or something, but choosing that antigen is non-trivial. So we actually had a huge leg up with the coronavirus because of the previous work on SARS and MERS earlier in the 2000s. We already knew a lot about how an immune system responds to it, what kind of antibodies were likely to be the best, and what kind of antigen to pick. So we had a a bit of a jump start. We did, and it's a very fortunate thing because otherwise we would still be having, probably even at this point, still be having big arguments about do you want antigens to the spike protein? Do you want them to the nucleocapsid proteins, et cetera, et cetera? So what is the usual process when designing vaccine trials? I know there's a a few different stages. Can you sort of talk us through at a high level? Uh, what sure. the usual process is? Usual is that you start off in animals, of course. <clears throat> you start off with you pick your antigen or you pick your uh, style of vaccine because we actually have to back up there. Another way of doing this is, as people have heard, to use a so-called killed virus where you just take the natural virus and inactivate it. You can do that by heat or treating with something like formaldehyde to denature its proteins. But that's tricky because if you denature these things too much, the response that you raise will not overlap with the real coat proteins of the real virus. So you have to denature it some, but not too much. It's an art form. So you don't see people doing that much anymore. These days, what people would like to do is come up with recombinant versions of these coproteins, just the same way you would make proteins for research purposes in a molecular biology lab. You use protein expression systems. That's what the company Novavax is doing right now. They're just making these proteins in insect cells. So that's one way to do it. But the other ways would be things like messenger RNA, which we'll get into, Uh, Live attenuated virus, which is another old-fashioned technique that's also kind of an art form, and we're really not seeing that right now with the coronavirus. But in any of these, the first thing you do is try to figure out if it's protective in an animal model. Now, that sounds easy, but first get your animal model. Not all of these human diseases even infect various kinds of animals, or if they do, it might be to different degrees of severity. So you can spend quite a while wandering around trying to find the right animal model that you think will be predictive of human efficacy. And we already had that done with SARS and the COVID-type coronaviruses too, fortunately. So after we find a suitable animal model and see if the vaccine is got some efficacy in an animal model. Um, If it passes that, what's next? Next, you apply to go into phase one trials. That is just going in. Well, phase one in in a regular drug development would be going into people who don't have the disease. But as we were saying, with vaccines, you're always going into people who don't have the disease. So phase one for a vaccine trial is a reasonably small trial on human volunteers just to see if you raise the immune response you think that you've raised. And you'll try several doses. Generally, one that you think is going to be on the low side, your best guess at 
what would be a good efficacious dose, and then one that goes up a little higher in case you need it. So most of these phase ones are going to be at least three different doses. You can also start to investigate different dosing schedules. For example, there are a lot of vaccines, as people who are vaccinating their children know, there are a lot of vaccines where you need an initial shot and a booster. That is, the immune system is primed by exposure the first time, and then you set off a really substantial antibody response the second. So you can investigate that. All right, how long should it be between the initial shot and the booster? Well, that's another thing to investigate. So the phase one trials can kind of go on for a while as you try to figure out what the best protocol would be. How much of this stuff do you need to give? What schedule do you need to give it on? And et cetera. All right. So it sounds kind of like you're hon- as you say, you're honing in on the protocol, trying to figure out, broadly speaking, what is most likely to work or what the best shot this vaccine has in, in humans to actually be um, effective. Right. And you're doing that because the next thing, the phase two trials, are more to see if you actually are doing anyone any good. So you would ideally want to have a really good idea of your best shot before you go in to phase two, before you go further. So that's why you you do all this dinking around in phase one, trying to figure out your dosing and your scheduling and all that. Phase two is where you start to find out if your vaccine is really going to protect anyone. And that's the stage we're at with the coronaviruses, and that's the stage that any of these come to. You give your vaccine to a large cohort of people, larger than phase one, and then you sit back and wait. If it's an infectious disease that you're trying to vaccinate against, you sit back and wait for people to catch the disease. And you should have it blinded, of course. You're just going to be looking at a certain number of people catching the disease. At some predetermined set point, you'll hit a number that statistically makes sense that you could get an efficacy readout. And the monitoring committee will unblind and say, okay, of all these X number of people who got the disease, how many of them got our vaccine? And that is where the rubber hits the road, of course. That's statistically where you actually find out if you have something. But phase two is the first time you find that out. So how large are phase two vaccine trials generally? Thousands and thousands of people. So quite big. Quite big, yeah. And from there, you go on to phase three, where you're trying this vaccine out in even larger and more diverse cohorts of people, young patients, old patients, people with pre-existing conditions, people who are taking other medications that your study, your, your real-world population might be expected to take. They're taking blood pressure or, or diabetes medications, whatever. And phase three trials get into the tens of thousands of people. So it's not unusual at all to see vaccine trials of 10, 20, 50,000 patients. So that's a substantial amount of time, effort, and money to get off the ground. Yeah, those kinds of sizes, there's a huge amount of logistics um, and coordination Ooh. and financial effort that has to be dug into just trying oh to coordinate gosh. that many people. I can't imagine running them through medical protocols. It is very, very hard. And it all has to be done well, because, of course, the last thing you want is to go to all that effort, to all that expense, and find out 
that you've been sloppy with something and that you have bungled your statistics. Worst of both worlds. So no one is going to go to the trouble of setting up a 30,000 patient trial unless they have devoted serious thought and effort into just exactly how it should run. Am I correct in my assumption that one of the major focuses of the phase three trial, and obviously this is a focus of all the trials, but uh, is to figure out safety um, as well as efficacy on a large scale population? Because of course, one of the things we do with vaccines that we really don't do with any other types of drugs or treatments is give them to massive, massive healthy populations. Yes, exactly. Phase three is really where safety starts to become a big, a big factor. You're going to be looking for it in phase one, but in phase one, the kind of safety events you're going to see are going to be immediate adverse events. You know, did people collapse in the hours after they got the vaccine kind of stuff? And of course, you'll be looking to see how bad the reaction was at the injection site. Do people get fevers? Do they feel like they have the flu all of a sudden? That sort of stuff. Phase two, you're, you're getting more statistics on that, but you're also starting to look for less common adverse events. And that is a real concern because, after all, you're messing with the immune system, and the immune system can do almost anything. It's Frankly, it's terrifying as a, as a drug discovery guy. The analogy I use is like um, you know, the medieval magicians talking about how you shouldn't call up anything that you don't know how to send back down. Mm. That's the immune system. Yeah, I'm getting D&D flashbacks of summoning the wrong demon and to try exactly. and, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And that's the problem is with the immune system, you can summon the wrong demon. Think of the autoimmune diseases that are out there. Think of anaphylactic shock. So very much the wrong results. So it could be because human immune systems vary so much from person to person. I mean, that's the point is that they vary from person to person. But because of that variation, you might have a very small number of people who have very severe responses. What if you give your vaccine to 100,000 people and 10 of them die? That's not good. But what if you didn't give the effective vaccine to 100,000 people and 1,000 of them die? So you see the kind of hard choices we're looking at. Absolutely. And when we start talking about something on the scale that we're seeing coronavirus happening on, and obviously the scale that we'd want to be able to take a vaccine to the world in, the smallest percent of a percent can be a big number, a big scary it really number. Can. It really can. And you also see why you want to test different patient cohorts, because we know very to a very good level of uh, precision, what the risks are as you go into different age groups. Young children have very small risk. Young adults, it's there, but it's still fairly small. The older you get, the worse it is. And by the time people are up in their 70s and 80s, this is a very severe threat. And especially if you have any comorbidities, um, blood pressure, overweight, any other things. So how are those people going to take the vaccine? Is it going to be hard on them to take the vaccine? You're going to have to find out. And the only way to do that is to dose thousands and thousands and thousands of old people. 
so tricky. And just I'm sure finding volunteers in a situation like we have today to run these trials is is complicated in itself. And we're definitely going to get into that. So okay. let's let's assume for a second that we've got a vaccine. Our phase three trials gone well. Um, okay. What's after that? After that, it is a regulatory matter because you assemble all of this humongous pile of data that you've generated. And as you'd imagine with all these patients, it is a, a massive pile of data. And you go to the regulatory authorities, the FDA here, the, the uh, European Medicines Agency, et cetera. The different, you go to Japan, you go to the different countries and you say, all right, here's what we've got. And they start their own hearing process. The FDA generally has an advisory committee that meets in public and deliberates over your data, and they take a vote. It's non-binding, though. The FDA does not have to follow the advisory committee recommendation, but they should have a pretty damn good reason if they're not going to. And then after that, the agency makes its call. That is, of course, a thumbs up and thumbs down, but it can also be a thumbs up with qualifications. This vaccine is approved, but not for people with this condition or only for people within these age ranges, et cetera, et cetera. I'm assuming that's a complicated dance at the best of times, given that uh, different countries and different areas of the world have different regulations, their own regulatory bodies, like you say, different hearings. Is this usually a one-by-one process, or is it something typically that uh, once a, a vaccine is kind of ready for that step, it goes to many at once? You would probably do many at once, especially under these conditions. And to be honest, there are a lot of countries that will more or less piggyback off of the FDA and EMA type reviews. You know, it's not like you have to go to every single country and have them do the entire process over and over again. But you're right. It is complex. And under the time pressures and political and public health pressures that we're operating in now, it's its unprecedented. All right. So it gets through the regulatory bodies. We're at a state now where the FDA and the other regulatory authorities have given it the thumbs up. Yep, go and use this thing. I'm assuming at this point, we now it's a manufacturing and logistics problem to get it manufactured and distributed. It is. And in fact, it's been a problem during this earlier time too because you're you're going to want to work these issues out before you launch and of course with our time pressures now it's even more of a problem but yeah manufacturing and logistics it's sort of like here's where your troubles really start <laughs> I guess uh, even just for a phase three trial, if you're talking 50,000 people, you're already starting to get a taste of your manufacturing and distribution exactly. problems. Exactly. And 50,000, of course, is just going to be a tiny fraction of what you would like to be able to dose. So it's it's a matter only for the largest sorts of organizations and efforts. If you're trying to do a worldwide vaccine, it is, it is a serious effort. So manufacturing has, you know, the usual problems of safety, purity, reproducibility, and documentation. There are massive, massive piles of regulations on good manufacturing processes, GMP, and you can be inspected for that. And if you are cutting corners or have flunked some of those, they can shut you down. And this does happen. Companies get hit with hundreds of millions of dollars of fines for messing this up. 
But if all that goes well, you still, as you say, have to distribute the stuff. How do you get it to all these places? Who's going to inject it? How is it going to be shipped and stored? Yeah, it's not something you can just go and put in a consumer shop. It's there's a, a whole to get this to people. You can't use the sort of typical methods um, at, at the tail end of the chain. It can't go on a grocery store shelf. It's it's exactly. a lot more complicated than that. Exactly, because these things are are most vaccines are injectables. So someone is going to have to give this to you as some kind of point of care, be it a physician's office, a mobile truck, a pharmacy. That complicates things because one of the vaccines we're looking at now, Pfizer's, looks like it's going to have to be shipped and stored at a much colder temperature. We're talking about minus 70, minus 80 centigrade, a much colder temperature to distribute. So the pharmacy does not have a minus 80 centigrade freezer. Very few people do outside of biology labs. So how are you going to do that? Yeah, definitely a big problem. Um, I I want to dive into the specifics of uh, the coronavirus vaccine. I do have one more question about the sort of normal process oh, sure. first, just to put make sure everybody's got sort of the same context going in to the particulars. Um, in okay. normal vaccine development, what's the sort of general success rate? I mean, we've all heard with drug development that there's a lot of failures for every success. It's one of the reasons why uh, drugs can be very expensive. So what is our sort of standard success rate in the world of vaccines, even if there is such a thing? How many failures would one expect on the road to a working vaccine generally? Yeah, that's a good question, because you're right. The normal failure rate in drug development is about 90%, which is just horrifying. And in fact, that is the, frankly, the central fact of the uh, of the drug industry. There's no other industry that has such a bizarrely high failure rate in its most crucial steps. I mean, 90% of Boeing's airplanes leave the ground. 90% of Pizza Hut's pizzas are probably more or less edible, but, you know, not in the drug business. So vaccines have a higher success rate, which is good. <laughs> Very good indeed. And vaccines against infectious diseases have a higher success rate than that. But there is still a failure rate over 50% for so these that, things. That's still, that's still a lot. It is. It's still a lot. It's terrific compared to a 90% failure rate. But by most standards of uh, industrial development, it's, it's kind of terrifying. The good news on the coronavirus is, though, that rate of failure, the historical rate of failure, includes a lot of diseases where people had to come at them from a standing start, mm -hmm. like Ebola. Whereas with coronavirus, as we mentioned, we already had a leg up with the earlier coronavirus epidemics. So I honestly am pretty optimistic about our current vaccine development. I think the ones that we have in trials now are generally going to work. It's just a question of what value that word work is carrying. All right. So let's dig into the coronavirus vaccine effort specifically. Um, can you kind of give us, now that we've got a, an overview of how this normally goes, can you give us some of the highlights of, uh, we already know about the leg up to get started, um, right. but some of the highlights of how the process or the way that we're trying to approach the coronavirus vaccine effort is different from the sort of typical way this goes? Sure. Well, one thing to understand is that vaccine development 
is kind of slow moving generally because of the factors we've been talking about, the need for extreme levels of safety and long trials. So there have been a lot of ideas kicking around for years now that look like they would be pretty useful. That recombinant protein thing I was talking about earlier is one. There's There may be like one recombinant protein vaccine on the market, but there's been a lot of talk about, gosh, you know, it would maybe be better if the annual flu vaccine could be done as a recombinant protein rather than the way we're doing it, et cetera. RNA vaccines are another one. The mRNA vaccines that Moderna and Pfizer are developing, that idea has been has been worked on for years and years now, but there had never been one that made it all the way up to the point of getting dosed in humans. So suddenly, because of the need to get some things out off the ground for coronavirus, these things are all launching at once. I think, honestly, the, the equivalent is going to be what World War II did to aircraft design. If you go back and look at that, there were still biplanes before World War II in the late 30s. By the end of the war, there were jet engines and jet fighters flying around. So we're seeing something like that right now. A lot of vaccine technology is being greenhoused much more quickly than it ever would have been otherwise. It's amazing to think, and I don't know if it's a hopeful thing or maybe a depressing thing, that some of the worst global incidents or uh, traumas or whatever word we want to call it, mm-hmm. uh, world wars, pandemics, managed to jumpstart certain types of technology in just yeah. truly astonishing ways. Your your example of World War II and airplanes, um, World War II and just sort of mechanization in that way in general, like transportation yeah. and it's Computers. just, uh, yeah. Um, I mean, nuclear power is another one, obviously. Exactly. Uh, the, the leaps forward that we can make in very, very short periods of time when there is a huge strain, um, yep. or, or there's sort of, we're all in this together vibe. And again, it, it, it's, it's a weird state because something terrible is happening. And so it feels terrible, but there's also this like weird hopefulness that you get yeah. when you see a lot of people coming together, like we're seeing in the vaccine yeah. community. It's true. It's also a money is no object kind of vibe too. <laughs> yeah, because that's true. That's a big factor because otherwise you would not, for example, be developing three, four, five totally different types of vaccine for the same disease at exactly the same time. It's it's a little bit like watching a huge demolition derby. None of us in drug development have ever seen anything like this. This would not have happened. You would have had one company coming in with an idea, and the other companies would be watching them and say, okay, let's see how they're doing before we commit all this time and effort. Nope, everyone in the pool at once. So nothing like it. That was definitely something I wanted to ask you. Having never followed a vaccine effort before, like I've obviously been following it now, like um, you are following it now, I'm, I'm sure as well. Um, I wanted to ask, how unusual is it for there to be so many vaccine candidates for the same thing at once? Completely unprecedented in every way. Because the <laughs> the post, your, your roundup post, are long. This isn't yes. three or four vaccine efforts. There's a lot, and you don't even cover all of them in your roundup. No, no. And the thing is, a good number of those things are going to drop out and disappear, but not all of them. 
there's going to be, I think, a second generation of coronavirus vaccines, and they may well be better in some ways or in several ways than the first. So it is nothing like we've ever seen before. So anyone who has not been following vaccines, you're getting a look at the weirdest vaccine development situation that has ever been. All right. So let's take a look at the people who are farthest along. Can you give us a quick rundown of some of the the big front runners, ones that maybe people might have heard about here and there in the news, even if they're not following the vaccine effort very closely? Yeah, sure. Well, the big ones are Moderna. I'll just list them. Moderna, Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson, and AstraZeneca and Oxford. And then I would say Novavax. Those, I think, are the big five right now. Can you give us a rundown of each of those big fives, uh, their approach, kind of where they are in the process? And overall, your sort of um, industry insider thoughts about how those trials are going and whether or not uh, they're, they're likely to come out the other side. Yeah, so Pfizer and Moderna are both going at this with the same kind of platform, the messenger RNA platform. And as I mentioned, that's one that had been kicking around for years. And now here we are with two in people at the same time. The f- idea behind that, of course, is that you give someone a messenger RNA construct, which then some of it at least enters their cells and is picked up by the cellular machinery, taken in just like other messenger RNAs are into the whole protein production process. And that RNA message you put in produces a coronavirus antigen protein. In this case, they're making a version, a piece of the spike protein that's on the outside of the coronavirus. It has a few mutations in it to make it a little bit more stable and long-lasting in the blood. But otherwise, it's just a, a pure piece of coronavirus. So those two are using messenger RNA. AstraZeneca and Oxford have a viral vector, what they've done is they've taken another kind of virus entirely and they're using its machinery, totally hijacking it. You strip out the genetic material from that virus and drop in the genetic message that you want. In this case, they're also using a genetic message to make a piece of the spike protein. They took an adenovirus, totally different class of viruses, and stripped out the adenovirus nucleotides and dropped in the coronavirus message we want. That's also what Johnson & Johnson is doing. They have a different kind of adenovirus vector. And you wonder why different? Well, one problem is is that a lot of humans have been infected with some of the more common adenoviruses. In the early days of viral vector work, people picked adenovirus 5 because we knew knew a lot about it. Problem is, a lot of people have been infected with adenovirus 5 without even knowing it. It really doesn't do much harm to anyone. But that means that if you come in with an engineered version of AD5, as we aficionados call it, if you inject someone with that, they probably already have antibodies to AD5. And that's going to attack your vaccine before it even has a chance to work. So J&J is using a rare adenovirus called AD26, and AstraZeneca and Oxford are using an adenovirus from chimpanzees, which needless to say, not many people have been infected with either. 
So you have those guys and finally Novavax, and they're the ones I mentioned that have a recombinant protein. They are just making straight naked spike protein and injecting people with that. Now, it's got other stuff in it. <clears throat> it has what's called an adjuvant. That's a new uh, – it's not a new thing, but something we haven't mentioned so far so far in this talk. Adjuvants are sort of like immune boosters. In fact, that's exactly what they are. They are substances that go in and sort of antagonize or set off the immune response. They'll make the site of injection swell up and turn red or, or itch. That actually gives a great boost to the overall immune response to your vaccine. There are a lot of vaccines that just would not be effective at all if they didn't have particular adjuvants in them. So Novavax is using one that they're buying from GlaxoSmithKline, and GSK is using it in their own efforts as well. So we have, I guess, three or four different technologies going in at the same time, but more than one company on several of the technologies. So interesting that the people who are farthest along are definitely not all following the same strategy. There's no. definitely some some different strategies amongst the people who have got the farthest so far. I'm very happy about that. We need to put as many bets down on the table from as many different directions as we can because there is that failure rate out there. And we also don't know yet which of these things are really effective and to what extent and in what patients. We could well end up with kind of a, a mosaic where vaccine A works better in older patients, but vaccine B is better for the rest of the population, and vaccine C has a little bit better safety profile, but vaccine D is easier to distribute, and so on and so on. So it might not be one vaccine, it might be uh, three or four that really, like you say, mix and match to get us uh, a better coverage. Yeah, and that's going to be a real regulatory headache too, isn't it? I can only imagine. <laughs> um, so are all of the ones that you mentioned here, uh, the sort of front runners, are they all in phase three trials right now or do we still have some in phase two? Um, Novavax is in phase two, I believe. But honestly, the way things are now, phase two and three are kind of blending together. Mm. But the others – Pfizer, Moderna, J&J, &J, and AZ Oxford are all more advanced. So in a situation like coronavirus, in particular in places that are seeing massive outbreaks right now, I'm thinking the US, the UK, um, India is obviously a big one. Uh, there's a, a bunch of places worldwide, everywhere in Europe pretty much, um, is experiencing huge outbreaks. So it's Figuring out efficacy, if you can find enough people, is probably not going to take too much time, given the rate of infection at the moment. But one, uh, one, one would hope, yes. <laughs> it seems like a fruitful environment for a vaccine developer yeah. to see if their vaccine is efficacious. Um, but I am curious as to, given the pressure on regulatory bodies, governments, the drug companies to get something out there. My larger concern is around safety. How long will these phase three trials run before someone decides to flip the switch and say, just manufacture it, get it out there, at least to certain groups of people who are at higher risk, um, as opposed to how long these kinds of trials usually run to get a really good sense of their safety? 
Yeah, well, you've put your finger on something that's very important and that it's very hard to do something about. These vaccines are going to be safety tested for a shorter time than the ones that we're used to. There's really no other way because otherwise we would be looking at the first one being dosed, oh, a year or two from now, you know, and that would be on a really accelerated schedule. Obviously, we can't do that. So they're running these trials with a lot more people much more quickly than they usually would. So we're going to have more data than, honestly, than anyone has ever had before on these vaccine candidates at such an early stage. But it's not going to be the full package that you would get after testing it for another few years. There's just no way around it. So we're going to have a read on acute safety. We're going to have a read on other side effects, other adverse events down to a certain level. And the key will be, is that certain level low enough to be definitely a better option than just letting the coronavirus burn through the population? I'm sure it will be, but these things could well have side effects that are not going to be apparent until we start dosing a few million people. So in a typical vaccine, my assumption is, and this could be totally wrong, but the, my yeah. assumption is, is that most of the adverse events that you'd likely see in um, vaccine usage would come fairly shortly after the vaccine's been given to a person and that there aren't a lot of long tail safety problems or adverse events, but that could be a completely wrong assumption. It's partly right because a lot of the things that you're most worried about are fairly short term. You have immediate reactions and then you have things like uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome. There's about 10 ways to pronounce that and that's mine. GB. That one is a neurological problem that is an autoimmune response. Now, people can get that. In fact, most people get that without being having any vaccine component. You get it after some sort of respiratory virus infection. It particularly happens in younger women more often than other cohorts. But what will happen is someone, say, a woman 20 years old, gets a respiratory infection, nothing particularly bad, and then another you know, few weeks after that, perhaps, you start to get these weird muscle problems. And it's because your body has reacted to the surface of the infectious agent and generated an immune response, which now is also attacking the linings of your nerves, the actual myelin sheaths of your peripheral nervous system. That's very bad, of course. These, these are crucial for nerve system function. And in bad cases, GB can send people into the hospital to be put on breathing apparatus because your vagus nerve is no longer capable of telling your lungs to breathe. Weirdly, though, a lot of people, most people, make a full recovery. Your body starts remyelinating, the immune response damps down, and most people with Gen Bar actually end up normal. Not everyone. Some people have long-term effects. A few people die. The flu vaccine has a very small rate of this happening. 
but it's much smaller than the rate of bad effects that we would get by just letting influenza rip through the population. But that one you will know within a few weeks. The really long-term stuff can also be very slow risk factor changes. Think, for example, about chickenpox. People get chickenpox as a child, or they used to. I got mine when I was in graduate school when I was about 24. I do not recommend doing that. But no one does anymore in the industrialized world because, by golly, we have a chickenpox vaccine. But in the days when children got chickenpox, that increased their risk decades later of coming down with shingles. And it was a while before people made that connection and realized it was the same infectious agent lying there dormant in the nervous system for another 50 years. So you can have some weird immunological consequences that could show up decades later. There is no way to know about these things. I hate to be kind of the Debbie Downer here, but there's just no way. We don't know enough immunology. So based on what you're telling me, it sounds like in the world of vaccine development, there is no kind of set safety rate. It really depends on the impact of the disease because you need to balance the safety of the vaccine versus the detriment that you see of the disease itself. So as long one presumes that as long as the vaccine is not creating worse outcomes than the coronavirus does, probably as long as it's broadly efficacious, it'll probably move forward. But also, it's going to be a little bit of a crapshoot, it sounds like, because we don't have that. We just don't have the time to let it play out to see what some of those long tail effects might be. So to some extent, it's a gamble, whichever one works out well. Yeah. That's reassuring. The thing is, though, drug development. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, I know, but drug development is like that in general, though. Mm. That's fair. It's always a risk-benefit call. Yeah, I guess the challenge with, um, as we've said already, the challenge with a vaccine is we're not proposing giving it to, you know, 10,000 or even 100,000 people who are already ill. It's potentially rolling it out to billions of people. Right. Right. And the human immune system is so variable that there are going to be some of those people who have some sort of combination of immune response that it's not going to go well. But on the other hand, we balance that against the certainty of what's going to happen if we just let all those, you know, a couple of billion people get the coronavirus. So I also want to talk about efficacy thresholds, um, in particular for the coronavirus, because obviously this thing is highly infectious. It's uh, transmitting incredibly fast. Um, it's by all accounts, potentially one of the worst global pandemics that we've seen. It's uh, moving right, right up the charts. Yeah. Yeah. So my question is, how efficacious does a coronavirus vaccine have to be to be worth it? Setting aside the safety complications for a second, let's presume it's quote unquote, 100% safe, even though that's not yeah. a real thing. But let's All just right. for a second live in a world where we can pretend that. Um, at what point Efficacy wise, is it like, yeah, okay, we can, it's, it's not a hundred percent, but we can definitely start to manufacture this. Yeah. Well, the FDA has set a floor of 50% efficacy below which they will not even consider approval. So that gives you a, a cutoff on the low end. Below that, 
you know, it's it's just felt from a public health standpoint that you're not doing a hell of a lot of good. And, of course, that is also keeping in mind the fact that there will be some side effects in some people. So you want at least that much. Now, the tricky part is, is that efficacy is kind of a multifaceted word because the at the other end of the scale – what you'd want to see is a vaccine like we had with smallpox, say, or polio. You take this vaccine, one shot, you are protected for life. There are some of those out there. It is possible. But we don't know if it's possible to do that with the coronavirus. We just don't know yet. So between those two is a lot of room. You could have a vaccine that, say, 75% effective. What does 75% mean? Does that mean that 75% of the people who take it will be protected against the coronavirus? Fine. How long are they protected? We don't know. We don't know enough immunology to tell you how long any particular vaccine lasts. That's another reason why those traditional trials go on for years is because you're actually watching the same people over a period of many years to see if the efficacy starts dropping off, the, which is why we have things like tetanus booster shots, because that one does drop off. So you have length of protection, degree of protection, and also the type of protection. When you get vaccinated, does that mean that you absolutely do not get the disease or does it mean that you could still get the disease, but it's still it's just a lot milder and your chances of death or serious harm go down a lot? That's good. But are you still infectious if you're in that state? What if you have a vaccine that protects a lot of people, but not fully, but allows them to walk around infectious without realizing that they've even been infected because it's so mild now? As you see, there are some complications here. Absolutely. It's, uh, yeah, that's, I hadn't thought about that last one. That's an important uh -huh. one to think about. Um, one of the things I have also been thinking about, and I think it's come up in, in news articles and explainers before as well, um, is if we think about something like the flu, um, we have vaccines for the flu, but we don't, you know, there's that sort of annual vaccine, but that annual right. vaccine tends to just target the one or two big ones we think might be the most likely to, to be the most problematic that year. Because, you know, I've caught a flu, even after I've got the flu vaccine, I just caught a different Absolutely. flu. So when we're looking at the coronavirus, what we've seen so far, is it mutating like the flu in that way? Do we have any idea if it, if this is going to become maybe like a flu scenario where maybe every year you can go and get your coronavirus shot and they try and give you the 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 one for the thing they think is going to be worse that year or is it not are we not seeing it mutating as fast well, i'm really glad you asked me that because i can actually give you some good news Ooh. on that yeah Yay. the flu is its own thing because the surface proteins of the flu virus change very easily in fact they actually mix and match whole protein domains between different strains of the virus, which is happening constantly. And that's why we have to have the annual flu shot, because every year, as the flu comes around again, it has gone through a year of, you know, 
fashion changes and comes at us with a different complement of coat proteins. So sometimes, as you say, we guess wrong. We just try to figure out what this year's model is most likely to be like and what kinds of vaccines will have the biggest coverage. And sometimes we get it wrong. The coronavirus does not do that. It does not swap coat protein domains like influenza viruses do. So that's actually really good news. That is super good news. Yeah. Now, the coronavirus does mutate. All viruses mutate. I mean, think of how rapid their their life cycle is. These things are turning over within hours by the uncounted billions within hours. So obviously, you're going to throw mutations around all the time. And we're seeing that. There are people who are tracking the the genetic sequences of isolated coronavirus from patients and we've got these huge family trees showing the various mutations wandering around the world the good news is though that none of these mutations so far have been particularly worse than others there's one the d14614g that one is maybe a little easier to catch but it doesn't seem to be worse when you get it The other good news is that the vaccines that are being developed now, they have actually looked at the the antibodies that get generated when you vaccinate someone with these and tested those antibodies against a wide range of coronavirus mutations. And it turns out they are active against them. So it's not like the virus already has something where it's dodged the response that the vaccine produces. Quite the opposite. It looks like it's going after it. Awesome. So we don't have a situation where we've got vaccines trying to pick off asteroids in a massive uh, meteor shower. Oh, it's it's exactly. uh, got a much wider range of efficacy. That's good. Yeah, it is. It is. Now, there's always a disclaimer. It could be that some weirdo mutation of the coronavirus throws off tomorrow in, you know, wherever, Vermont or the Philippines or, or Tierra del Fuego. And that one is the one that will evade the antibodies that we're producing now. But it looks unlikely because it's had plenty of chances to do that so far and nothing has gotten outside of the uh, zone of destruction yet. So the final thing I wanted to dig in with you a little bit uh, is a topic of a post that you put out a few weeks ago called the vaccine tightrope about emergency use authorizations for coronavirus vaccines and more broadly the impact that um, both uh, one of these EUAs but also more broadly when the first one starts to get used and how that will impact the rest of the trials. Because as we noted, we've never seen anything like this where we've got all of these trials all happening at once mm-hmm. with lots of different efforts around the world, lots of different uh, vaccines being tested and created and tried. Um, so can you unpack that post a little bit and kind of walk us through what some of the concerns or the things to think about in this scenario as we start to get a little bit closer to the line of one of these things crossing the line into being um, into being allowed to be manufactured and kind of sent out? Sure. Yeah, this is a major regulatory and public health headache, to be honest. And it's As you say, it's unique because we have all these things going simultaneously. Normally, this would not be something we had to worry about at all. But consider what's happening now. We've got these four or five vaccines in late-stage trials. What if one of them, and I'm not even going to say a company, I'll just say what if company A 
comes along in a few weeks and says, okay, we hit our first predetermined interim read. We had the, the designated number of coronavirus cases and our monitoring committee ran off, you know, to a conference center somewhere away from us, unblinded the data. And the vaccine is 75% effective, according to what we see now. We'll be getting better data, of course, as we keep, you know, the trial running. But right now, it looks like it's going to be about 75% effective. If that company then goes to the FDA and says, okay, here we are. Give us an emergency use authorization. It's time to begin dosing people with the vaccine. Now, of course, when you say dosing people, you're probably going to you're going to have a, a, a stratified queue, first responders and high risk people first, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that's another topic. But they would go and say, give us an EUA. It's time. What happens if the FDA says yes? If they say yes, what about the participants in these other vaccine trials? They are in the middle of a clinical trial for a different drug, a different vaccine entirely. Will some of them want to say, the heck with this, I'm going to go off and get the vaccine that has now been shown to be 75% effective, rather than sit here and wait to see how this one is? Well, if that happens, it totally blows the statistical workup on that trial. If you have a bunch of people defecting and dropping out of the trial and going off and taking another vaccine. So you run the risk of really roiling the waters for all the other vaccine trials if you give conditional approval or emergency authorization to one out ahead of the others. So that's that's a severe head scratcher. And the FDA is actually very concerned about that. I think right now they are leaning toward not giving a, a real full-scale EUA to one vaccine out in front of the others just because of this. The ethics of this honestly has me all tangled up as I try uh-huh. and think through the labyrinthine ethical quandaries that it this sure puts in front of us. Um, I mean, if you think about just a single large-scale trial – and then the ethics of if you show a high efficacy in an emergency situation like we're in now where we know we're not going to have the long-term studies for safety that we would want, at what point do is it the most ethical thing to do to give the um, patients who've got the placebo of that the actual thing if it's shown to be uh-huh. efficacious? I mean, they're, they're in even setting aside the other trials that are ongoing is its yes. own kind of ethical quagmire. It is. And that happens in regular drug trials, too. You'll have a point where trials will get stopped for futility. That is the actual term that's used, stopped for futility, because the monitoring committee takes a look at the data and realizes there is no way that this can possibly work. There is no point in going on with this trial. In fact, it's unethical to continue. Stop it now. On the other hand, occasionally – not as often as the futility stop, but occasionally you have a trial stop for what is termed overwhelming efficacy. The interim read will take place. The monitoring committee will unblind the data and go, holy cow, look at this. It is unethical to keep giving people placebo. This works. 
And now that's rare. It's really rare that we get a readout like that. The effect size that you would need to see that is very large, but once in a while it happens. So yeah, you wonder about the people getting the vaccine placebo. One way to sort of dodge this would be to say, all right, this vaccine looks like it can be efficacious. We're going to expand the trial. We're going to give more people this thing, but you people are now enrolled in the clinical trial too. So we're going to get even more data on this thing than we would have otherwise. That gets around a little bit of it, but not all of it. That's for sure. And there's some complicating factors as well. We talked a little bit about the challenges of distribution. There was uh, one vaccine candidate where it requires extreme amounts of cold. So yeah. obviously that one getting through first can com- can cause a lot of havoc because distributing that one is yep. even more so than many is going to be a nightmare. Um, and so if you have one that seems to be authorized first or – and even if it's not through an EUA, even if it's just generally it – gets through the gate first, because someone's going to be first. Um, It still kind of throws everything else into disarray at that point, I would presume. Um, And it could be a question of one might be have a a, might be sort of got a higher efficacy, but perhaps it's requires you to get three boosters, whereas the other one with a bit lower Mm -hmm. efficacy, it's, you know, one spray up the nose. So there's a whole bunch of stuff there and competing factors. And then because my brain likes to punish itself, it can't help but thinking about all of these news stories about people talking about vaccine health passports and stuff like that, where all of a sudden having a piece of paper that stamped, I've been vaccinated, might allow you to go back to quote unquote, normal life. And then that just makes the ethical swamp so much more yep, difficult swampy. to think through. Yeah, really swampy. Yeah. I feel I feel up to my nose in swamp. Yep, yep. No, this is you're 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 actually looking at this correctly. I hate to tell you, and since this is 2020, the company that has the vaccine that needs the most rigorous cold chain distribution or ultra cold chain is Pfizer. They are also the company that has the most aggressive interim data read schedule. So they are possibly the company that's going to get the first look at whether or not their vaccine is efficacious. So that situation you were talking about has a greater than usual chance of actually occurring. You'll be thrilled to hear. Yes, very thrilled. <laughs> yeah, this is, I mean, it's, it's fascinating. And I'm in a weird headspace where I think to myself, at some point in 10, 15 years, this is going to be such a great book to read. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, but being here right now is, uh, complicated and difficult and trying to parse the news and even with lots of blogs and reading lots of stuff. It's just overwhelming and complicated. Oh, yeah. But I mean, that's the way history goes. I mean, we still read Thucydides' history of the Peloponnesian War, and it's been, you know, 2,500 years, but no one wanted to live through that. All the really interesting, exciting periods of history are things you probably would not have want to have experienced yourself. French Revolution, you know, think about it. So this is going to be quite a story. 
And I don't think any of us are ever going to see something like this again. In fact, I fervently hope not. So as someone who follows this stuff closely, who works in the industry and has an insider's knowledge of this, um, there's a whole lot of people who are science nerds, uh, but obviously aren't in the industry, people like myself and a lot of listeners to the show who are more science savvy and obviously are following this thing even closer than they would normally follow science news. And on top of that, you have people like my mom who never uh-huh. reads anything to do with science, and she is doing her best to try and follow this to the best that she can. So what advice or thoughts or cautions or hopeful remarks, what would you like to say to the sort of broad swath of the population that is now looking at your field, at vaccine development more broadly and saying, and just like trying to understand what's going on, trying to parse all of the news that's coming out on the minutia of of what's going on and just don't have the background to really be able to parse it? Not many people do. I mean, as I said, I've been doing this stuff for 30 years now, and there's just so much to learn. So I would tell people, I think my biggest takeaway is that for all of the tough issues we've been talking about, I'm still actually pretty optimistic. We've never done this before, but we have mounted a gigantic R&D response to this pandemic unprecedentedly huge and expensive and and multi-headed. And I really think that we're going to get some of these vaccines through. We're already handling the coronavirus clinically a lot better than we were at the beginning. The death rate has been going down because we know better how to treat it, what to use, what not to use, what things aren't even worth your time. So we have actually had a pretty good medical response to this. Now, the public health and social aspects to it are another thing. But as far as the sheer biomedicine end of it, it's actually going pretty well, I have to say. There are a lot of ways in which it could have gone so much worse than this. So I'm optimistic that we are going to get vaccines, more than one, for this coronavirus and that we are going to be able to knock down this pandemic with these vaccines and their successors. So that's my biggest takeaway is don't despair. We really are getting somewhere. That said, if you want to follow, you know, at the rate at which we're getting somewhere, you're going to have to pick and choose your sources of information very carefully. There is a terrible signal to noise. Mm. on all this stuff if you read the internet if you're on twitter or facebook or instagram awful awful signal to noise there is just so much raving nonsense some of it is being spread deliberately by people who want to sow confusion and doubt some of it is being spread inadvertently by people who are well-meaning but have no idea what they're talking about and some of it is just because this stuff is not easy to understand Even for people with some pretty good background, there are people from other fields of science who have been making fools of themselves by trying to come up with epidemiology-type predictions. It ain't easy. So you're going to have to be really picky. And that means if you see something amazing coming through on Facebook or Twitter or your email or whatever, 
be skeptical. Double check it. Go look at some real sources. Go look at the people who write about this stuff for a living. I'm not saying just to go to my blog. Go read the drug industry reporters and the medical reporters for places like the New York Times or the Boston Globe and their stat news. Look at the industry sources that talk about the drug industry. See where these results are coming out. Is it being published in a journal? Is it a preprint that hasn't been reviewed yet? Or is it someone who just put it up on their own website and is taking the world by storm? Be careful because there's a lot of nonsense out there. From my perspective, I think there's two big takeaways after having spent a week really deep diving this um, uh-huh. that I would love to just shout out as well. The first is, is that this this vaccine effort is phenomenal and it's fast. From the standpoint of drug and vaccine development, it is lightning fast, but it is still going slower than we want. And that is an inherent contradiction and will continue to be because even once we have a few of these things, the logistics of rollout is going to be slow. So it's just something that I want everyone to start to like think about in their head that even when someone throws up the confetti and says, yay, we did it. There's still a lot of work to do. <laughs> this yes, is not an yes. overnight switch. There is no, um, there, there is no easy button here from the standpoint of once we've got it, then we're good. There's a whole long process after we decide one is works well enough that we can go forward with it. So I definitely want people to take that away while also understanding, as you said, and as we talked about earlier, this thing is moving at light speed by pharmaceutical standards. It really is. It really is. So yeah, that's, that's a big, a big problem for people because you, on the one hand you have folks saying, Oh my God, we're moving so fast. And they're like fast. You know, we've had hundreds of thousands of people dying all year. What do you mean fast? So it's, it's a tough one. But, you know, I'm, as I say, I'm optimistic, and I guess a lot of people are getting to learn a lot more about drug discovery and development than they ever felt they needed to know. <laughs> I hope some of it sticks. Um, and then the other real quick shout out for me is uh, always to remember that nothing is 100%. And even when we've got one and you've got it, there is no 100% in life uh, from the standpoint of you might get a vaccine and you might still get coronavirus or it, nothing's 100%. So we need to keep that in yep. mind as well. Yep. Yep, it's a hard lesson and it doesn't make anyone sleep better, but it's true. I mean, we already know that from other diseases. Some people get the flu worse than others every year. Some people get cancer when they didn't have any of the risk factors. Other people engage in all sorts of risky behavior and never came up with cancer. But the numbers over the thousands and over the millions don't lie. And that's what we're collecting the numbers on right now. It's the goal is to make things a lot better, knowing that we can never make them perfect. Well said. Derek, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. And thank you so much for the deep dives that you've been doing into coronavirus. Um, your blog has really become kind of the coronavirus uh, vaccine one-stop shop in some ways. And I'm not sure that's something you necessarily wanted, but at least for my part, I really appreciate the work and effort and time you've been putting into it. I'm going to keep it up. And at the same time, 
I'm looking forward to the days when I can stop writing about the coronavirus. <laughs> I deeply look forward to the days when I can stop reading about coronavirus. Uh, mm -hmm. That thing that I said about in 10, 15 years, this will make a great book to read. I'm hoping that there's a good, you know, there will be need to be a 10-year cooling down period where I forget this ever yeah, Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about Derek Lowe or his blog in the pipeline or uh, some of the vaccine research we've been talking about here today, as always in the show notes, you will find lots of links to click um, at and you can also find those links at our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. Music